The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. What's the first thing you think of when you hear the name Billy Porter? Is it his groundbreaking Emmy-winning Pray Tell in the FX series Pose? Is it his show-stopping voice that has garnered him a Grammy and a Tony Award? Or is it that tuxedo gown he wore to the Oscars in 2019 that broke the internet? He's not an overnight sensation, but a star in the making since he set his eyes on Broadway as a child. The life and the career that I'm having right now is because I'm ready. Because I spent 35 years in this business getting ready. When everybody had decided that my time was up, that as a black, gay, flamboyant artist, there are only so many spaces that you are allowed in, sir. In his memoir, Unprotected, and in this conversation, first recorded on December 7th for Washington Post Live, Porter talks about his unstoppable journey from the poverty of Pittsburgh to the fame that envelops his life now. And as a heads up for listeners, he also talks frankly about the childhood sexual abuse he suffered. Hello, Jonathan. I'm so excited to be here with you. It is so great to talk to you again. And you know what? I went back into my into my my records and and discovered the last time we talked was May of 2020. And at no yep. point did you mention that you were writing a memoir? Um, were you already I working did. on it when we talked? Oh my God, I've been working on it. I mean, truth be told, since uh, a uh, agent came to me um, in 2014, mm-hmm. I had my, uh, my first play, While I Yet Live, debut off Broadway, and an agent came to see it. A book agent came to see it, and he called me up, and he was like. I think you should write a memoir. So from 2014 until I turned in the book earlier this year, Mm -hmm. um, I have been working on, in some form, trying to put my story down on paper um, and do it in a way that felt, um, you know, of service. Mm-hmm. You know, how can I be of service? Like, that's what my life has been about. Uh, my intention, I got that from Oprah and Ayan LeVan Sant and Dr. Maya Angelou. They were talking one day on the show, they were talking about service. And I was in the gutter. I was just in the bottom of everything. And I, you know, and that change shifted, that perspective change shifted everything in my life. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure that the book could serve the people and be some sort of healing because, you know, art is healing, you know, so Billy, and I would call. Billy, was, ahead, the, 
but art is healing. But in reading the book, and I read it cover to cover, um, yeah. through the process of writing this book, did you heal? Um, I am healing. Um, it is a continuous process. Um, I am so much better than I was. And I still have far to go, you know, but what I'm realizing is that it's an everyday commitment, you know, healing, you recommit yourself. I recommit myself, I should say, to the healing of myself every single day and every mm -hmm. moment of every day and sort of trying to change um, the habits and the systems um, that will align with what healing looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, one must change behaviors and habits um, that keep you bound um, in so, order to heal. So Billy, there, there are a few things early on, on in the book, especially your early story growing up in Pittsburgh. I think for a lot of people who might think they know you and know your story, are gonna learn some and be a part of some really painful, dark moments in, in your early life, particularly um, yes. the molestation you suffered um, from your, your, your stepfather, Bernie. Yes. Mm -hmm. The process of writing about that, um, how'd you get through it? Well, <clears throat> COVID really helped this book. Because, you know, initially it's like overcoming adversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, what's the point? Right. You know, and what I figured out was healing my trauma through my art. And so to sit down and to have the space to write because we were all shut up in the house and then COVID is going on, you know, it was harrowing to not only revisit that, the abuse part, which is literally, has been literally an everyday thing from the time it happened when I was seven, all the way to discovering in the writing about living through the AIDS crisis that I had not processed that either. And so I found myself in trauma therapy during COVID for various reasons. You know, for the first time in my life, I had to actually look at it in the face and go through it. And it was harrowing, but also um, healing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? well, well, Billy, I I want to get to side in in reading in reading the book and going with you through all of these traumas. You're also writing about the fact that you go to see the Wiz, and it mm -hmm. sets your world of fire. You realize that's where I want to be. And what's really funny, I went to see the Wiz as a kid, and I you was did. mesmerized, but not to the point where I wanted to be Billy Porter. <laughs> but I was just mesmerized. <laughs> <laughs> to see people who look like me on stage 
in the same way that it hit you. But also in reading your book, Billy, I had to remind myself in these early chapters that you weren't a grown man. You were a child. You were a a kid doing all of these things. Go ahead, Billy. And, And I have to say to you that that was the thing about trauma therapy that cracked everything open for me, right? My therapist was like, and and I've been in therapy for a while, but it was the first time that I realized, right, I was a child. Like one of the exercises in trauma therapy for me was self-compassion. You know, like how do you, because you can't heal until you can have self-compassion for yourself. And one of my exercises to get to that compassion was to look at pictures of myself at that age. Hmm. And just sit and look at them and be uncomfortable looking at them and understand and retrain the neuro pathways in my brain to understand that I was a child. It's so interesting that you picked up on that because that was that was one of the catalysts to me understanding how to heal myself Hmm. because the abuse made me feel like I was an adult the, because I was gay. And, you know, there's this, there's this idea that like, you know, especially in, with black people in the black church, it's like, oh, well, he was molested. So that's why he's gay. It's like, no, mm-hmm. there's no excuse for me being gay. I was born that way. I was born gay. So let's have that conversation over here and then have the new conversation, which is, and I was molested because I was gay. Because the predator understood and knew that because of my queerness, the sexuality that he was introducing me to, I wouldn't respond. Mm -hmm. Because I'm gay. You know, and so I would respond to that. He knew that. That's pre- that's called praying. That's mm-hmm. called, you know, predatory, you know, grooming, all of that stuff. And so for me to finally look at myself, you know, because when I said I wanted to stop when I was 12 years old, which is in the book, you know, because they were saying I was an abomination from the pulpit, you know, homosexuality was abom- an abomination. And I had to look up what that meant. And realized, oh, I think I'm participating in behaviors that are abominable. So I just said, let's stop. And it stopped. And inside of that confusion, I felt like, oh, well, I had the power to stop it all the time and I didn't. And I'm grown, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you there's nobody around who seems to be able to take care of me. So I'm who, who, who has the tools to take care of me, you know? So I guess I have to take care of myself. So I will, you know, and go ahead. And and, and, and Billy, to, to that point though, your mother early on taught you to separate, separate from that. And I think this came into play before Bernie came along. Um, that you had to you had to depend on yourself 
Yes. Do not be be able to take care of yourself. Don't depend on anyone. And and for certain, you're not going to get anything for free. Because and if someone does offer you something for free, there is always a price to pay. And that stuck yes. with you. But I want to I want to bring up advice that your aunt Dorothy gave you. And it's here on page 54. You write this. <laughs> you write. Can't have nothing if you don't work for it. I learned my work ethic from the generations before me. My Aunt Dorothy always told me, quote, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And that mantra comes throughout the book when you are auditioning for all sorts of, of, of plays and musicals, starting from when you're a kid in Pittsburgh and making your way all the way through to Broadway uh, in New York City. Um, talk about how um, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. How did that manifest itself? Well, the manifestation is what you see before you. <laughs> the life and the career that I'm having right now is because I'm ready. Because I spent 35 years in this business getting ready when everybody had decided that my time was up, that as a black, gay, flamboyant, as I've been mm -hmm. labeled, artist, there are on only so many spaces that you are allowed in, sir. And I had traversed those spaces by the time I was 24, you know, and I had, and I had been pigeonholed into this sort of magical gay fairy clown situation that and I and in my book I call it the Millennium Coon show um that I was not happy with that's not I, I you know it's like I always knew that there was more than that so I detached from what I took myself out of the trajectory of where everybody else was placing me and I took the road less traveled now, when you take the road less traveled, that's usually without a spotlight on. So mm -hmm. I spent many, many years, decades, in fact, working. You know, I went to when I couldn't get a job in the theater or in film and television or my music career imploded. I went to graduate school at UCLA in the screenwriting program, professional program in screenwriting. I started directing. I started writing. I started creating on another level, on a deeper level. You know, it required me to get in touch with my own voice. Dare I have my own voice? Dare mm -hmm. we have our own voices as Black queer people. How dare you stand up and speak your truth? You know, for a long time, we weren't allowed or we were told that we weren't allowed. And so, um, you know, it was, it was my time in the Valley and my Aunt Dorothy saying, get, stay ready. So when, you, when I win an Emmy, first Black man, you know, to win an right. Emmy, I'm first black gay man to win an Emmy and people start asking me, oh, well, I hear you write or I hear you direct. I literally was like, and here are all the big <laughs> and here's all the stuff I've been working on for the last 20 years. Um, there's this, there's that, you know, and, and and I find it in every aspect, you know, when I was when I was trying to build my career and I had nothing and I would watch someone like Queen Latifah, for instance, have a talk show. I was like, oh, 
That's another revenue stream. I should learn how to read a teleprompter. This is me <laughs> having no, you know. And so then I show up and somebody asks me to host something. And I can read a teleprompter. You know, they asked me out of the blue, you know, to host the ABC red carpet. They didn't know whether I could do it or not. Mm-hmm. You know what That's I mean? True. And I should, they just were, they were just hiring me for a personality. And, you know, we were in rehearsal and, and the director said, well, we've we've given you two interviews, you know, because we don't over, want to overwhelm you. It's your first time out, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, OK, no, bar, no problem in my mind going. I, y'all don't know how ready I am for this. You know, and like by the time we left rehearsal, I was given 16 interviews. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You've been in this business, as you've said um, in our conversation now, and as you write in the the book for 30 years, for three decades, a little more. And you've had peaks and you've had valleys and valleys where you write that you didn't work, you didn't get a gig for 10 years. It is in those moments when people with big dreams, when they are tested the most as to whether that dream is, is real or worth pursuing. You've yes. had peaks and you've had, and you've had valleys. What is it that kept you, kept you going? Is it that as you write in the book, you knew you had a gift, you knew you had a talent, and by damn, you were going to make sure that people heard it? And if so, where the, how did you keep that going? Because that's hard. Yeah, well, first of all, I knew that I had a gift. I knew that, that, that God had given me a gift, and it was not just a gift, but it was a, it's a calling, it's a responsibility. You know, growing up in the black church, dare I say, a ministry, right? And so understanding that my purpose on this earth is bigger than my ego is what kept me going. Mm -hmm. It was like, do you want to be a celebrity or do you want to be, or are you an artist? Like, are you an artist who, who is contributing to the world, to the growth and evolution of the world, or do you just want to be a TikTok star? Like what, it's, there's a, <laughs> it's a different mentality. It's a different intention. You know, I, I, it goes back to that service conversation, you mm-hmm. know, that I saw Oprah Winfrey and Ayala Van Sant and Maya Angelou talking about. When I say it changed my life, it changed everything. Mm. And from that moment, that was what kept me going. It was like, oh, this is my service. And the world needs to catch up with all this black boy joy. And I'm going to keep doing this until they do. And I never imagined that the catch up, that the glow up would be what it is, what it's turned out to be. That wasn't, Mm -hmm. this is not what I was expecting. 
at all. And you, and you know what, Billy, I can't believe we, we are running out of time, but we can't have this conversation about your life and your career without talking about another big theme in your book, and that is the angels in your life. From the beginning until the end, you name, you call out people who who helped you along the way from the family whose name I can't remember, but you name them, the family that drove you back and forth um, to school for a year every day. Yes. Um, Right on through to um, was it Bill, um, Bill Butler, who you met, who you met on a on a cruise. And then talk to him for a year. You have a gay vacation. Didn't talk to him for a year. And then when you needed representation, you just called him out of the blue and he remembered you. And he you have he has been your agent for 30 years, for 30 years. Talk about the importance. Talk about the importance for people to have angels in their life. You know, it takes a village. And, you know. Quiet as it's kept these days, none of us do any of this alone. (laughs) None of us do any of it alone. None of us can make it in this world alone. And we may feel like we're alone and we may feel like we're doing it all by ourselves. But like, you know, I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for the people that I called out by name in my book. And I needed to call them out by name because so often, we, we land on the negative. And I wanted to make sure that there was just as much talk about the powerful, positive energy that was also counteracting in my life simultaneously. You know, it, it, it made me the human being that I am today. And uh, I just want to make sure that I continue to pay that forward, you know, with the young people that are coming behind me. You know, it's like people need guidance. People need angels, honey. Mm-hmm. You write you write in the at the beginning of the book about how you're on a flight. And um, I can't I don't remember if it was the flight attendant. Um, but so, yeah, a, a black gay man came up to you and like poured his heart out to you in terms of what you meant to him. And yeah. you thanked him. But you also write that he doesn't know how meaningful those words are to you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a really hard time that we're in right now. And our power lies in our courage to stand up and speak and fight, not only for ourselves, but for each other. And that is all I've ever wanted to use my art to do. I'm not a politician. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm an artist. And The only way that I can contribute is in that way. You know, Toni Morrison has a quote that I love so much that I'm going to read it right now to you, for you and all your people. Um, And she says, um, 
This is precisely the time when artists go to work. There's no time for despair. There's no place for self-pity. There's no need for silence. There's no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. This country needs a healing. The entire world needs a healing. And whatever I can do through my art to contribute to that is what I'm going to do. In the two minutes that we have left uh, to close out, what's your message to young queer black men or anyone struggling with being accepted for who they are? It's not about acceptance. It's not about tolerance. Those are verbs that require validation from something or someone on the outside of you. Validate yourself. Love yourself. And then you teach people how to love you back. Those are um, phenomenal words to end on. And um, that is literally the message of your book from beginning to end, singer, actor, author, director, Tony, Grammy, Emmy Award. And I'm waiting for your Oscar. Emmy Award winner, Billy it's Porter. at some point. <laughs> Jonathan, this is too short. We got to do it too- longer next time. All right. Uh, we, we will. I hope to see you soon. Billy Porter, thank you so much I'll for coming back soon. to Capehart and Washington Post Live. Thank you. Love you, babe. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.